Alright, welcome back to another episode of Celluloid Jelly, a podcast featuring a couple of X-Video Store guys who just love talking about movies. I am CJ Talbot, and once again, joining me is Mr. Cesar Alejandro Jr. from Filmsmash.com. Hey Cesar, how are you? Good, how are you doing? How's everyone? Uh, everyone's doing well. Everyone's doing well. The state of California is not burning as much as it was the last time I spoke with you, so that is a good thing. Some of the wildfires have been contained or put out or gone out. Or... I'm sure there's still fires somewhere in the state, but uh, not close to me, so that's that's a good thing. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it no, the most important it, thing. It no longer looks like... Uh, you know, Dante's Inferno at night around my house. That's great. <laughs> so, um, how are you doing? Good? Yeah, um, pretty solid. It's raining over here um, as we're talking right now. Rain. So. I miss rain. You know, oh, yeah? uh, I was driving to work one day last week and it rained for like 10 minutes. And it was just like the greatest thing in the world because I haven't seen rain in so long. <laughs> Grass is greener. Oh, well, you know, next time it rains, uh, I'm probably going to. Have a little Tim Robbins Shawshank Redemption moment. Nice. Min- minus the sewage crossing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take a selfie. Don't have that on the West Coast, do you? No, no, we do not. Um, very, very little rain. Very dry out here. It's desert. Yeah. Lot, lots of rocks and dust. Nice. <laughs> Cactuses and. So no. You could say California rocks. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Uh huh. I'm gonna let that one go. Um, <laughs> so hey, uh, what have you been watching lately? Um, well, I guess not as much as uh, I have been. I did watch uh, a decent, maybe like three films yesterday. Um, but I guess I'm gonna talk about the last film I watched. Um, Cesar, you do know that most people don't watch three films in a day, right? Uh, yeah, that's a lot for I most do. people. Well, hopefully, uh, people who. <laughs> do podcasts probably watch a lot of films though yeah usually usually but you know i want to maintain that that uh, standard okay go for it <laughs> well um i watched it's a little out of character for me but i watched a french film yesterday um called nothing to declare it's a movie i bought a, a while ago it's a, a period film circa 1990 1993 i guess um but the movie was shot in 2010 okay uh, it takes place uh, in this small little border town between France and Belgium, and uh, it's in the days before the Eurozone would go into effect, which it would effectively eliminate customs, border um, border patrol, and things like that. Uh, I guess this is like a step that was going to lead into like uh, the European Union. So in this small town, there are two uh, kind of like competing... Uh, customs officers. One is a Belgian. He's played by a guy named Benoit Pervoud. Uh, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. That's but he okay. is like a massive anti-French racist. <laughs> and he's super, super overzealous. Um, and uh, there is uh, a French um, customs agent who's a little bit more laid back. He's played by a guy named uh, Danny Boone, who's also the director and writer of the film. And uh, he's unfortunately in love or in a relationship with um, uh, the Belgian officer's sister. So um, they get kind of tasked and together to form a mobile unit that's going to go into effect um, once the official borders disappear. 
Um, and they're gonna, their job is going to be to patrol around and try to stop smuggling and contraband and things like that. So it's it's a movie that basically tries to get um, the Belgian to get over his like predispositions and racism and stuff. Well, once the border kind of like disappears, um, it's mostly a comedy. I thought it was pretty good. There's a couple of like legitimately laugh out loud scenes in it, um, but it's funny to me to consider how like the xenophobia and <laughs> um, you know the the illusion of a disappearing border, uh, how that's kind of relevant today. So, but I thought I thought the movie was pretty good. Like the ending, it, it really kind of elucidated something uh, that's very European to me. Um, it's that how like racism can be forgiven really easily. <laughs> so I thought it was really really odd. Like for instance, the guy, the Belgian officer. There's a moment. There's a scene in the film where he um, he stops uh, a Frenchman who's trying to smuggle drugs into through Belgium through the through the the gate and basically uh, he ends up um, shooting the guy uh, in the back to stop him. The guy survives of course, but uh, afterwards he's feeling guilty. So he goes to, he goes to uh, his priest and he confesses to a priest, you know, when I shot that Frenchman in the back, I felt really good about it. <laughs> I was like, this is our hero. This is one of our heroes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then so the priest tells him, you know, you might be going to hell if you feel this way. So he makes an effort to make a friend with the Frenchman, you know, unbeknownst that he's got a relationship with his sister, but the movie itself, like overall is pretty good. But that, that, that final message that it gives you is a little, takes the wind out of it a bit, I guess. Gotcha. Gotcha. But overall it was pretty entertaining. So it's mostly a French film. So that actor is Belgium, but um, they do speak French through the entirety of the movie. So, I remember thinking that was a little weird too. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I recommend it. Check worth checking out, certainly. Alright. So nice. uh, So what was it called again? Nothing to declare. Nothing to declare. Who uh, any any French or Belgian actors of note? Uh well I mean uh, the guy who plays the Frenchman, the French uh customs uh officer, Danny Boone, who directed the film, he's apparently pretty well known. This movie was I guess, uh, considered a pretty big hit if I, if I recall correctly, but uh, I guess I just not experienced enough with a lot of modern French cinema to really kind of recognize a lot of the names. Yeah. I'm right there with you on that. I, I am not familiar with it. I, the title sounds vaguely familiar. Like it, you know, when did it come out? 2010. Yeah. Like I, I probably remember seeing like a preview for it or something like that, but that's uh 2010. That's a long time ago. Yeah, Jeez. December 2010, Jeez, Jeez. It's not that old. It's already, it's almost a decade old, Cesar. Why are you watching all these old movies? I don't know. <laughs> I know. I, I even had subtitles. What was I thinking? Shit. <laughs> How about you, CJ? What have you watched recently? Um, Last week I watched a bunch of stuff, actually. I, I uh... You know, I've been paying for Filmstruck for quite a while, and I haven't been using it that much. Um, so, like, last week I made a concerted effort to, like, get back and watch a couple of movies on Filmstruck. And uh, they have a bunch of, like, Peter Himes movies on there. Uh, so I watched uh, I watched both Capricorn 1 and Outland, 
And I've only uh, seen Capricorn one before. Have you seen Outland? Yes. Uh, I kind of loved Outland. <laughs> Outland, for you know, for those who don't know, is is kind of like a like a space set high noon kind of like riff at least. Uh, Sean Connery is like a he's a lawman. I think I think they call him a marshal in the movie. Um, and he's on a, a mining outpost on um, one of Jupiter's moons, Io, which is also, you know, famous for being, uh, you know, in, in another Peter Hyams movie uh, featured prominently in 2010. Um, and uh, and I, I don't even know what they're mining. I'm not, is that even established in the movie? I don't remember. You've seen the movie much more recently than me. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, though. Like, it never comes into play. I, like, I don't yeah, know what they're mining. Thing, right? Um, but Sean Connery is, like, the new marshal, and apparently they change the marshal every year because, like, you can't, you know, it's basically, like, a year tour of duty or whatever. And uh, so, you know, he gets there, and he's sort of welcomed by people, and um, Peter Boyle is, like, the like the head of the mining uh, company. Uh, he's like the manager on site and, uh, he's not in the movie nearly as much as he should be. Uh, cause Peter Boyle's great. Uh, but he only has a couple of scenes, but anyway, like Sean Connery, you know, uncovers like this conspiracy, like all these weird deaths start to happen. And it turns out that Peter Boyle is, uh, is involved in importing and selling drugs to the workers that are basically like steroids that give the workers a higher productivity, but after a certain amount of time using these drugs, they essentially go insane and either kill themselves or kill other people um, in like strange, weird ways, like walking into an airlock without a spacesuit and just opening the airlock so that they explode. There's a lot of like weird shots of like faces um, like imploding in airlocks, <laughs> like like not quite Riccio level, but like. You know, pretty pretty gross, nonetheless. Um, you know, so like you know, Sean Connery starts to investigate, and there's like a there's like a female doctor who's like a very no nonsense like, uh, I wouldn't say bitchy type character, but like a real hard ass of a of a woman, um, uh, who who kind of gets in and, and helps him uncover what's going on, and and uh, you know, I mean, it's just. It's a really well shot movie. Like I thought, it looked really great. Like Peter Hyams uh, uses a lot of um, darkness and shadow, and and moves the camera really well. Um, so I, you know, it's it's a uh, you know essentially, I guess I forgot the high noon tie in. Like in the middle of this investigation, Peter Boyle hires like a couple of assassins to come and kill Sean Connery, and they're coming in on like. You know, it's not a train, but it might as well be a train because it's like a, you know, a, essentially like a transport ship that's coming. So everybody knows what's happening and this transport ship is coming and he's just waiting for it. Uh, and he tries to get help from his men, but they're all corrupt and they don't want to help. And he tries to get help from other like normal people, but nobody wants to help. So it's really just him and the doctor versus these assassins at the end of the movie. Um, and it's pretty great, um, you know. Again, it's it's you know High Noon's a classic, you know, and and Sean Connery is no Gary Cooper, but he's pretty pretty good in this movie, actually. I think so. Um, yeah, Outland. You know, I watched Outland before I I'd seen High Noon, so like um, until this moment, I didn't realize it was a High Noon remake. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's not like a straight remake or anything, but it's an obvious like inspiration for it. So. It's probably been 15 or 20 years since I've seen Outlet, though. Yeah. Um, Peter Hyams, the other movie I watched was Capricorn 1, which I, I won't go into like great detail, but man, I thought that was just bizarre. Like, there's some strange choices. Like, I really, on paper, really like the story a lot. Um, it's, uh, it's essentially about uh, a manned mission to Mars that gets aborted, um, and the astronauts get taken out of the, uh, the launcher like at the very last minute, but they still launch the rocket and they pretend like these guys went into space to, to go to Mars. And they basically capture these astronauts and force them to, um, to go along with faking a landing on Mars. And uh, eventually the astronauts sort of escape and there's like a manhunt for them. And, and there's just like some really weird choices. The last like half hour of that movie is just bonkers. Um, and, uh, in, in a weird way, I, I, like, I was super entertained by it, but I, like, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a good movie, <laughs> <laughs> but that's got like, uh, like Josh Brolin and OJ Simpson or not Josh Brolin, James Brolin, um, the dad <laughs> who looks a hell of a lot like Christian Bale to me in that movie. Actually, it's almost like Christian Bale or J James Brolin playing Christian Bale playing James Brolin. Like, that's kind of the vibe, like, that I get from it. <laughs> it's got the juice in it. <laughs> it does have the juice in it. And the third astronaut is played by Sam Waterston, who... Uh, oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, is he the tallest out of everyone? No, I, no. James Brolin's pretty tall. And the, and OJ's tall. So Sam Waterston... Waterston like, might be the shortest one of the three, actually. Ah, I can't... Geez. So, um, but yeah, but Elliot Gould plays a, a journalist who kind of like sniffs around. Uh, he has a friend from NASA who disappears, um, because the, this guy's a scientist who kind of, he discovers that the video transmissions from Mars, quote unquote, are actually coming from someplace much closer in the United States. So they have to do away with him. So they murder him, basically. And Elliot Gould is worried about his friend, so he starts to investigate and uncovers the conspiracy. Um, so on paper, it sounds really cool, but like the last third of the movie is just super weird, and the ending, like the very final shot, is just hilariously bad. <laughs> <laughs> How long is the movie? It's, it's like two hours. I don't know if so. I can invest that much just for the end shot. <laughs> <laughs> and the end shot is a freeze frame of James Brolin crashing his own funeral. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so like they say everyone died on Mars? Is that what happened? Uh, no, they, they, uh, they apparently um, they die on re-entry. So, okay. so the, like, the astronauts escape and they try to run for it and go find civilization so they can tell their story before they get killed by NASA and the government. And, uh, and only James Brolin what makes the hell? it. This movie sounds... sounds <laughs> run from NASA? Does NASA have an armed division? I, no, the government's involved, man. It's all Ron conspiracy. On the case. Yeah, and it's in Texas, too, so, you know, everybody's got rifles. Even NASA. <laughs> That's right.
<laughs> All right, <laughs> we spent way too much time on that. But hey, if you you know I, I, your your uh, your passion for Capricorn <laughs> One was infectious. <laughs> You know the weird. You know I'm. You know I'm just gonna go on with it for for a second here because, um, like there's a weird like biplane chase at the end of this where like James Brolin is picked up by Elliot Gould in like a crop duster. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. It's and, basically like it's burnt on a wire. And they're being chased by helicopters, like 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 airwolf style helicopters. Like, it's just nuts. It's crazy. Oh, I love it. I love, I want to go back and rewatch it now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we could probably move on from that. But yeah, uh, Outland. I liked it. Capricorn One. It's pretty crazy, but I guess I was really entertained. So more so than I remembered. So. <laughs> so yes. uh, so what are we talking about this week? Uh, it's going to be as good as Capricorn One, but. <laughs> Maybe not as good as Capricorn One. Pretty entertaining. Uh, well, this was your pick, but we're we're talking about Joe Dante's 1989 comedy, The Burbs. That's right. Uh, this is our second Joe Dante film uh, that we covered. It is, and that's uh that's crazy because uh, this is the only director we've talked about twice, right? Um, I guess so. We've we've had uh, a number of films with multiple actors in it, though. But, uh, yeah, I believe as a director, he's uh, the only one to have a sophomore episode. Yeah, and uh, and I think this is our first Tom Hanks movie. Yes, I think you're right, too. Okay. Um, so, well, this was your pick. So what uh, what is The Burbs about, Cesar? Uh, well, Tom Hanks plays, uh, I guess, like um, a 30-year-old or so uh, father who decides to take uh, some time off, take a week off from work in order to like recharge his batteries. Um, in doing so, uh, he decides not to go on a typical outing with the family on vacation or anything, but decides to take his days off at home um, where he's surrounded by some crazy, crazy neighbors in the suburbs. Um, now, as he becomes uh, an observer to his own neighborhood again, um, with all this extra free time, he begins to suspect along with his other, um, kind of bonkers uh, neighbors that their newly arrived neighbors, the Klopex who are right next door are somehow up to misdeeds and um, something pretty nefarious. Yes. This is essentially Joe Dante's rear window. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one of the, that's definitely one of the things that I enjoy about it. That this is, you know, this is an ordinary dude who is just stuck at home. Who hit, you know, his brain starts to wander, and and uh, and then the conspiracies start to to get raised, and and then things get completely out of hand. So, really out of hand. <laughs> like by the second day, I was like, "What are you doing?" Um, you know, just we did we did talk about uh, Gremlins, um, and this is another one of those like suburban like mischief movies um and i think you know joe dante is one of those guys that doesn't kind of get the the mainstream respect of like a spielberg or a robert zemeckis but i think that like he certainly belongs in that category of of filmmaker 
Um, you know, he's he doesn't have the the meticulous like setup and payoff writing that like Robert Zemeckis does, and he he doesn't necessarily have like the the optimism of Spielberg, um, you know, e even in Spielberg's darker movies, there's always sort of like a, like a kind optimism to it in, in most cases. Uh, everything is going to be all right. I think Joe Dante is a little bit more of a dangerous filmmaker and you get, you definitely get a sense of that in Gremlins, but you get a sense of that here too. Like, I think, like you said, by the second day with these characters, anything can happen. Like you have no idea what's going to happen. Um, I really like that. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a certain type of energy, um, in like Joe Dante's films that, that are, it's not quite manic, but like, it's, you, you, it's easy to get swept away in it. Um, I think it's, um, see, I think much like, you know, Spielberg wears his, uh, influences on his sleeve with like all the classic Westerns and things like that. Um, I think Joe Dante sort of wears his influences on his sleeve quite a bit, and I, I think those influences are um, more cartoony, and I think in particular there's a lot of like Looney Tunes type nonsense, and I mean nonsense in a good way, uh, in, in his films. Yes. Um, you know, I, like there's, uh, not to jump too far ahead or anything, but there's a scene in this film where they, the dog discovers a bone underneath the fence of the Klopex, who are the, the weird neighbors, and brings it over. And, you know, Tom Hanks and, um, what's his name? Is it Rick Dukeman? Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce his uh, last name, but yeah, it's Rick. Okay. Well, they're, they're having a conversation. It's, the characters' names are Ray and Art. Um... And the dog brings the bone over, and Art picks it up and goes, oh, you know, nice button, and he throws it. And then when the dog brings it back a second time, he gets a better look at it. And uh, it's, a, it's a human femur bone. And Dante does this thing in the camera where once they discover it's a femur, like, they both start screaming hilariously, and the and camera just fun. zooms in and zooms out like it's a cartoon. Um, which, for some people, might feel like it's a little out of place, but at the same time, it, like... I think, you know, based on the story and the performances and things like that, like, I, I think it fits perfectly fine. Yeah, I mean, the movie, like, um, when you get to, like, the characters, Ray, Art, and Mark, uh, I guess uh, Mark is played by Bruce Dern. Right, um, Rumsfield. Yes. Um, they feel like, the movie's almost like kids getting into trouble, but they're adults. Right. Um, there's, there's a number of scenes that are like it. Like, for instance, when I guess uh, Carrie Fisher plays uh, Tom Hanks' wife. Uh, when Ray um, is kind of like grounded for a little bit, there's a scene where Mark and Art like call out, um, <laughs> go to the house. They call out to him from like the upper deck. Right. Hey, can you can you come down and help us, or come out and play, or so? And then like Carrie Fisher has to put her foot down. I remember thinking that was like there's a lot of childhood experiences where that's happened to me. So. Yeah, well, that's because, I mean, they're behaving like children. I mean, the whole thing is, like, all three of these guys are are essentially, like, immature man babies. So, um, not, not, in the, not in the way that we kind of use that term now, uh, you know, for people who kind of, like, yeah, have no motivation in, in life or whatever. But, I mean, like, you know, these guys, you know, they, they have jobs, they work, they do their thing, but they come home and they just act like kids. <laughs> Maybe art works. I don't know what he does. 
Well, you don't know what any of them really do. I mean, at, at one point, Tom Hanks says that uh, that Mark, the Bruce Dern character, is an arms dealer, but you don't really know that that's the case. Yeah, he just has weapons because he's yeah. uh, a vet or whatever. Yeah, he's he's a veteran, and uh, you know, like um, Ricky, played by Corey Feldman, at one point calls him lieutenant. Um, so he, he almost seems like he's a retired military. Um, yeah, we'll so stipend or whatever. Yeah, at one at one point in the movie, um, I can't remember what he says, um, but Tom Hanks is like, you know, uh, ah, never mind, I can't remember. He's he's like, you know, what are you gonna do? Kidnap him and like, he's like, that could be arranged or something like that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, the the first fifteen or seventeen minutes of this movie like is is very well crafted. Um, yeah, you know, like the movie opens with Tom Hanks coming out of his house. He's walking his dog at night. He's in his robe. Um, you know, yeah, they live in a cul-de-sac, um, and you know he comes out. Uh, you know, the dog's walking around. He walks over to his neighbor's yard, and the, the house is a bit dilapidated. The lawn isn't done, and it looks a little bit spooky. And uh, and there's like this, there's like this weird bit of magical realism to the to the film, where like once he crosses the property line, like you hear like lightning and thunder, and the wind like kicks up, um, and it seems very supernatural in a way. Um, and, uh, you know, you hear a bunch of weird sounds coming out of the Klopek's basement. Um, and there's a, there's a great shot of Bruce Dern's character um, watching Tom Hanks lighting a cigarette in his window, silhouetted. Um, so, like, right away, like, Joe Dante is instantly uh, informing us that this is a neighborhood where, you know, all of the neighbors sort of kind of watch each other. Uh, so, you, you they're... The, there's no privacy involved in what's going on outside yeah, of the homes. Everyone's always in a window, yeah. kind of checking out what what everyone else is doing. Like you know, that's the opening scene, the scene you just described. But like that, the the morning after, um, when you get introduced to all these other characters, basically it's it's a montage of people either on their porch, um, you know, outside of their garage, or looking out a window at everyone else, kind of seeing see what's the current situation for today. Yeah, and the music very sort of like um, menacing and and odd in the in the opening scene, and then as soon as we cut to the next morning, it's very sort of like uh, you know much more upbeat, lighter music by Jerry Goldsmith, um, who did the who did the music for the movie, and uh, and I love that he opens up the the morning sequence with um, the paperboy. Um, because I, like for me, the, the, the first thing that I thought of while rewatching this movie was that, you know, everybody's in everybody else's business and everybody feels like they have a right to kind of like observe people and get into their business a little bit, which is a very realistic kind of thing in, in old school neighborhoods. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like that is maybe the case now, but like back in the eighties when this movie takes place, you know, everybody kind of knew everybody, everybody knew each other's kids, and, um, you know, so uh, there, there was that element that people were in each other's business, and opening up with the paperboy, you know, like, what's more suburban America than just a paperboy on a bicycle throwing newspapers, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but also, you know, he's delivering news. 
the, this idea that like information is something that these people crave is like the first shot of that morning scene. Um, so I, I kind of like that he opens up with that. I like that gag where the paper boy basically throws the papers directly at the residence. Hit him in the chest. <laughs> he hits Tom Hanks in the chest and then Tom Hanks throws his coffee at him, which I think is just a great, I, I don't know if that was improvised or not, but I hope it was improvised because yeah, it feels it, like it is. It's <laughs> like an incident. Like he's like, <laughs> it's, it's such a great like comedic bit. Like, in, um, you know, being our first Tom Hanks movie, this is, this is not like super early Tom Hanks, but this is still like, Tom Hanks comedian, which is, I guess we don't think about him in those terms these days, but this is after Splash and Volunteers and um, uh, just after Big, right? Big came out in 88. Was um, it 88 or 87? Uh, I think it, Big came out in 88. This came out in 89. Okay. So I, I think um, I remember seeing an interview where they said that Tom Hanks basically became a megastar when Big hit, and he was filming the Burbs at the time. So he was like on the cover of Rolling Stone while they were shooting the Burbs. Okay. Uh, but uh, but yeah, you know, this Tom Hanks is the like crazy, loud, sometimes obnoxious, you know. Um, Tom Hanks like I like the bit at the end of the movie where like everything that's happened he throws himself onto a gurney (laughs) (laughs) and then and then like nothing happens so he gets himself up and picks the gurney up himself and throws it in the ambulance and then throws himself on top of the gurney again um and that's like that that's the kind of like classic like Tom Hanks comedy bit that I love yeah, that, that's a moment I, I'm a really big fan of. I don't remember. It's it's been quite a while since I've watched The Burbs, uh, but it was it was a really good revisit. Um, and that scene in particular was one of the ones that the two scenes I think I really love that one and um, I guess the scene with the garbage men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I I love the the garbage men scene. I I love the fact that Art and Mark literally like are sitting in the garbage truck pulling the garbage out. Oh. <laughs> uh. And then it's a great bit later because nobody ever picks up the garbage, so everyone just yeah. keeps walking and driving over it. What's the line? Um, he goes, "I." The garbage man goes, "I hate cul-de-sacs." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hate cul-de-sacs. There's only one entrance, and everyone's weird. <laughs> Everyone is weird. Um, let's talk about art a little bit. Um, Rick Dukeman did not have like a very big career and, and to be honest, like, I don't think I've ever seen him in a, like a co-starring role like this one, uh, again, I, you know, I mean, he, he probably was, but like, um, not something that I'm familiar with, but I think it's funny because like, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Die Hard as, as most people are. And, uh, and he plays like the quote unquote city worker Walt in Die Hard, who's like the power guy. Like they use him, the FBI has him shut off the power uh-huh. um, to the Nakatomi Plaza. And in this movie, there's a scene where uh, Art basically dresses up like a power um, company employee and goes up a telephone pole and cuts a power wire and gets electrocuted. So Getting typecast already. Yeah, like <laughs> I just I I don't know. I just I just thought that was a hilarious like like bit to do that. So he's got a blue collar sensibility to him, I guess. He definitely looks like, looks like he could be electrician. <laughs> 
Yeah, the the kind who takes chances. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't need safety harnesses. But I, I I like his screen presence. Um, and I think he's funny. I, you know, I, I like that he's uh hungry all the time and eating all the time. Um, yeah. The breakfast scene where he goes in and and uh, you know Carrie Fisher and Tom Hanks are there and. And they're talking about the Clopex and and why Tom Hanks is on vacation and things like that. You're getting a lot of information in that scene. Just um, after, like, he almost kills Tom Hanks by yeah. shooting into his yard. Right. <laughs> and, like, during that scene, he leaves the gun nestled against the, it's leaning against the refrigerator. Oh, really? I didn't notice that. Yeah. I was like, okay, whatever. And then the kid just walks in and out of that scene. Yeah, the kid's a real non-character. Like, the kid shows up, and, uh, like, the only thing important that the kid ever does is that scene at the breakfast table when they're talking about the Clopex, and he's like, um, he's like, there's three of them, and they only come out at night, and uh, Ricky says that they're nocturnal feeders, and uh, they were outside in their backyard digging, and uh, which is something that Hanks gets to witness, you know, yeah. later that night. So, but then the the kid's not like, you know. There's another scene where he's like uh, standing next to Ricky. That's like the bee the beehive scene, as his father and Art are running around being chased yeah. by bees, and uh, and they get squirted off by the hose by the Bruce Dern character. And there there's a shot of the kid just kind of like shaking his head, like he can't believe his father is such an immature, you know what? And uh, <laughs> right. But then the the whole rest of the movie, like he's he's barely in it at all. I think uh, we'll talk a little bit about Corey Feldman. Corey Feldman, I guess, um, how old do you think he was in this film? I'm not sure how old he is, like, in actuality. But I guess in 89, he would have been, would he would he, would he have been in his 20s by then? Yeah. Yeah, he was um, probably in his mid-20s. I mean, there's a scene of, of him and Art drinking beers on the front porch. That doesn't necessarily mean he's over 21 because Art's not exactly the most uh, responsible adult, but... <laughs> well, it's, it's the suburbs, too, so stuff stuff happens, right? Yeah. Well, according to, according to this, uh, he would have been 18, 17 or 18 when this movie was shot. So, oh, wow, really? Yeah. He just, you know what? He's been in movies for so long, though, it just feels like he would have been older. Yeah. And he's definitely, he seems, uh, I mean, he's still kind of got like that, he's playing a teenager, I guess, right? But I guess no one else lives in his house, <laughs> or you never see them. He's kind of like the one that's active. That's so funny that you mentioned that because, like, I actually wrote a note down uh, asking if Ricky owns that house <laughs> because where the hell are his parents? <laughs> like, paint your, paint your damn house. <laughs> um, but th- there is a throwaway line uh, when the girlfriend comes over. I think her name is Gail, um, and uh, and she asks uh, where his parents are, and he says his parents are away until Thursday. So Lucky. so he lives with his family, but, you know, they're not around. Which is funny because, like, everybody's taking vacation at the same time. So, like, Art is, a, I guess, on vacation, but his, his wife went away with her mother? No, went to visit her mother. Right. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, like, there's, there's a line where he says, uh, he says, can you imagine me, like, hanging out with them for a week? I'd rather chew broken glass. <laughs> So this, there's this, like, recurring theme that, like, going away on vacation is exhausting and and irritating and not worth it. Um, 
And I, I like that because uh, how many times have you ever heard somebody say like, you know, I need a week off after my week off or something like that. Like it's very kind of like true to life. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, I guess like a, a grace period that you kind of need in order to recover from relaxation, right? Yeah, that's because we always tend to like try to squeeze too much into our vacations. So it becomes like hectic and almost like work in some cases. Um, I think definitely, um, not that it wasn't fun, but we definitely tried to get as much as we could do when we were in California, when I was in California with Jordan to yeah. visit you guys. And it was, it was a lot of driving. <laughs> so Yes, we spent a lot of time in the car. We should have like done some yeah. carpool karaoke while you were out here. Uh, did we? I don't remember. I don't think we did, no. A little bit of, um, Miami connection, maybe. <laughs> no, you just told us that story. Yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so, uh, I'm a big fan of Bruce Dern in this movie. Bruce fucking Dern is the man. I, f- I-, I just love Bruce Dern. Go ahead. Please go. <laughs> Well, I think, like, you see him at the beginning, and, like, he's a super, like, stalwart, like, I guess, veteran, and he, he's got a procedure to put up uh, the flag in the morning. Yeah. Um, and then immediately he steps in dog shit, <laughs> and, like, he loses his decorum, like, instantly, and, uh, you know, I think that's a pretty defining moment of what type of character he is. I, I think throughout his career, Bruce Dern has always played a lot of characters uh, where he he has a very sort of cool, collected um, nature to him. But like he's 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 a hothead. He's prone to outbursts. He's irrational in many cases. So he kind yeah. of flips back and forth between between the two constantly. Um, I I absolutely love him in this, and I love that Dante gives him like the. The icon shot. You know, when you get introduced to Bruce Dern, it's like a low angle, camera's pushing in, he walks out of the house, he's got rock music behind him, he puts on his sunglasses. Like, he's basically wearing like he's he's wearing like camouflage shorts, I think, and then he's wearing like a green vest with no t shirt on at all. <laughs> and a beret, right? And then he and then he puts on his sunglasses. It's hilarious. He makes he makes his wife carry the flag too. Yeah, well, you know, you got to give her a job, I guess. I mean, what yes. else is she doing? She's just, you know, she she carries the flag and she does the gardening. Because <laughs> there's that scene where she's bending over and and uh, Ricky's like, uh, "No tan lines this morning." Nice. <laughs> and she like, I love that she loves the attention. Like she kind of. Not necessarily flirts, but she appreciates being objectified in that way. And well, Hart, uh, does, Hart doesn't say anything, but he, you, you see um, him appreciating her too. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, in that scene with Ricky, though, like Bruce Dern sort of puts up with it, like, but he doesn't get why his wife likes it. I guess, and he kind of he just turns to her and he looks at her in this weird way, and he's like, "That kid next door's a meatball." <laughs> And the line delivery, like, I'm not even doing it justice. The line delivery is just so, so great. Um, yeah, and then later he's yelling at Ricky. He's like, you know, go back and paint your house. <laughs> go back and paint your goddamn house. <laughs> but yeah, Dern's great. And, and there's, um... I, he's kind of psychopathic. Like, 
like he's so willing to like pull out his guns and like tools like he's you know he misses war or something right well like he his infrared sights and his guns and 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 stuff like that are basically like like hanks pulling out the toolbox that his father-in-law gave him like look at this cool stuff that i just got i don't know what to do with it like bruce Dern's the same way like i've got all this military equipment i don't know what to do with it <laughs> now, like you know in terms of the suburbs it's like the movie's got a very strong commentary that it's kind of like a place for people to <laughs> retreat and maybe like lose their minds, I guess. Uh, I guess like the the similarity of your surroundings kind of has driven people crazy. Uh, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I think it's like there's there's so little going on that they can't help but like create their own like things. Um, I think like, uh, like you mentioned, like when he pulls out his toolbox, I mean, I think certainly that's, you know, I never, never got that. Like I, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, right. And people have tools in their shed, but I never see people working on stuff. (laughs) Well, (laughs) maybe not. I mean, I, I see people working on stuff, you know, I mean, like, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my dad was not. Um, you know, he was not a carpenter or a mechanic or anything like that, but if something went wrong in the house, he would go grab his tools and, and fix it for the most part. You know, very few times would he have to like call and have somebody else come out and fix something. Um, you know, if we put in a ceiling fan, he would do it. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I get the, you know, gotta have tools in the house and, and, you know, like that thing. But I, I think Hanks is the type of person who isn't handy, (laughs) He just has tools, and like, and Art has that line. He's like, "What are you gonna do? Build something?" And Tom Hanks goes, "I think so." <laughs> so he he really doesn't know what to do with them. He just knows he needs them in case, um, you know. Uh, and I, I think uh, I think there's a lot of that, you know, in the suburbs that we, you know, we've got a lot of crap that we don't necessarily need, but we need it just in case. Yeah, you know. And one of the things I know is people like, you know, uh, we talked about earlier about people watching each other through windows. Um, I guess there, there's a whole thread where they, they assume that uh, the Klopex have killed uh, their neighbor, Walter, who's gone missing. Right. Uh, because of a number of reasons. So they connect the dots. Um, you know, towards Walter, the end of the whose film, dog Queenie shits on Rumsfeld's log. Yes. <laughs> um, so, like he's absent for most of the film until you get a revelation at the end that he's actually not dead. He was actually just in the hospital. Surprise. He gets back into his house and like the first thing he does is go into the window to look at what's going on outside. So I remember thinking, huh, okay, I guess it's similar to like what you see in, um, remember the Titans when Denzel Washington and his family moves into a predominantly white neighborhood everyone's watching them through their windows. And that's kind of like a, like a word motif that kind of gets turned on its head in that film. But you know, in this, I guess maybe that's just what suburbanites do. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a ton, there's at least a dozen shots of people in windows, um, throughout the movie. Uh, and this idea that like somehow like, you know, we can see window, you can see both ways. So like for some reason we feel like we have a sense of privacy when we're behind the window even though we really don't, 
Like there, there's just like like there's a weird like disconnect there. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but I I think people like there's there's also like a like a thread of Ricky's the only one who views this like unabashedly as entertainment. Like yeah. you know to the point to the point where he's like calling his friends up and inviting them over to his house because they got to come and see what's going to happen in his neighborhood. Yeah, catering it with pizza. Right. Pizza dude. <laughs> when that thing crashes, there's like 15 pizzas in there. I know. But like earlier in the film, there's a there's there's this motif of them like even they can't help but be concerned with their neighbors, you know, business and they can't help watching and you know and witnessing what's going on but there's there's a bunch of times where people are like we shouldn't be doing this um you know like uh Mark's wife Bonnie uh Mrs. Rumsfield uh at one point when they are uh, I I guess it's when Tom Hanks the Ray and the art characters are going up to the house and uh I'm going to come back to this later, but like they don't want to be seen as chickens. So like they, they're going to go up and they're going to knock and introduce themselves to the neighbors. Finally, after a month of them being there and, uh, Rumsfeld is like, they're daring each other to ring the doorbell. And his wife says, you know, we shouldn't stare. And I, you know, Carrie Fisher says something earlier, like, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't be talking about this. And, and then at one point, Tom Hanks says, you know, don't spy on the neighbors with Ricky to his kid. And there, there's this whole thing about how they, they know they shouldn't be in their, their neighbor's business, but they are anyway. They just can't help themselves. It's human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, Urban nature, I guess. Yeah. Suburban nature. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the... It, it's not really an examination of like masculinity or anything like that. Like it's not that deep, but I, you know, I, I love the idea that like Tom Hanks, his character and, and art's character too, are both motivated by being seen as, um, cowardly when the Klopek kid comes out of the house and they are like for the first time. And, and you get this great shot where Dante uses the camera and he keeps like zooming in on people's eyes like it's a western. Um, like a, it's like a pan to the right as like Hans Klopek is looking at like his his street and all, everyone's out there staring at him back. Right. Um, but like you know they don't want to go up. They don't want to be you know and and Art calls him a chicken and he's like you're you're you look like a chicken in front of your son and that's that's what motivates Tom Hanks to do what what he's going to do to go up and, and introduce himself. Um, and a couple times throughout the movie, what's that? Pretty ill-advised. Yeah. Everything like art suggests is pretty ill-advised. That's true. But later in the movie, when Tom Hanks discovers arts, uh, not art, uh, Walter's toupee inside the Klopex house, he acts like he doesn't know anything. And he agrees with the women like that everything should be fine and that they, they should just back off and not worry about it. And then he gets alone with the two guys and and both Art and um, uh, Mark, uh, I can't remember uh, what what he says, but Mark says something like, you know, pull your balls out of your wife's purse and make you know make a decision for one time in your life or something like that. And then Art calls him pussy whipped for agreeing with his wife over the boys. And uh, like so, there's this whole thing, you know, this whole like you know 
thing about like men not wanting to fragile masculinity. Yeah, like not not wanting to be cowardly or or, or something like that. So yeah, well, yeah, that's why they're inventing this stuff for them. So not that you know, I mean, spoiler alert: the Klopex have been doing misdeeds. <laughs> um, so it, it, you know, I'm not sure what how you're supposed to take it. I mean, you're supposed to obviously look at them like these guys are overreacting. But, you know, in the end, in the context of this film, at least, you know, they were just, I wouldn't say they were justified, but they were correct. I don't know if I think the film was stronger if it wasn't the case, but like, it almost feels like they wrote the movie so that they were wrong. And then they sort of added and tacked on the, the ending with the, uh, the Klopex actually being bad people. Mm hmm. Um, it, that it, that that part of the film does feel like it's tacked on to me. The the idea of Tom Hanks going on this diatribe about how they are they're the skips, um, which like art art tells this story to Ricky early in the film about like this really nice guy decades before that was the town soda fountain jerk guy, um, uh, and and he went crazy and murdered his family with an ice pick. And it's a uh, it's it's a weirdly like disturbing story that reminds me of Kate's sad story from Gremlins. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a like a Joe Dante thing, I guess. Like just that, just had things like that in his movies. Um, and uh, but when Ray has a nightmare, Art is dressed up like Skip in the nightmare, and then later in the movie it comes back again, and Tom Hanks is like, you know, we. You know, we thought that the Klopex were the skips, that they were the weirdos who were cracked and, and you know, but it's not them, it's us. We're the ones who were broken. Um, and that, that kind of feels like a natural ending to the film, you know, that, that realization that, like... What's the line that Art says after he says that? He says, like, what do you want me to do, move? <laughs> yeah. Am I supposed to do move? But you know, just like in in uh, Hitchcock's Rear Window, it does turn out that the that the Klopex did murder the people that they got the house from, uh, the Naps, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so the the doctor, Doctor Klopek, um, tries to murder Tom Hanks, and I, I absolutely love the shot. Like the ambulance, like goes into Art's front door, essentially. And uh, and the back of the ambulance flips open, and so you've got Tom Hanks and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name. <clears throat> the doctor. You, the doctor. You've got them on a gurney, like shooting out of the back of the ambulance and into the back of like the Klopex car, which flips the trunk open that exposes the bones. It's a very like cartoony sequence, um, but it's funny, you know. The guy's name is Henry Gibson, who plays Dr. Klopek. Yeah, he's in, like, uh, Nashville, right? And uh, uh, he's got, he, he plays, like, the Nazi leader in Blues Brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the voice of Wilbur in Charlotte's Web. Oh, yeah? Nice. What a, what nice. Aw. <laughs> Aw, thanks, Henry Gibson. Oh, man. Yeah, like that scene's. Uh, yeah, you're right. It does feel tacked on. I don't know if I prefer it as is or without that. Do you think? Um, do you think that scene was added on by the studio, or was that like a Dante choice to include as part of the film? Uh, I don't know. You know, I I watched this. I we didn't even go through like how we watched this. I watched this on Amazon Prime. 
Um, uh, me I do not own this on DVD or Blu-ray, but I know Shout Factory has like a great Blu-ray special edition that's available, uh, and it has a bunch of like uh, behind-the-scenes stuff and a completely alternate version of the film. I think like a, a rough cut of the film that has a different ending. So I I, I don't know. I have to. You know, I I was not able to get it before I needed to screen it, so uh, I don't know what the ending is, but. Uh, it would not surprise me if the Klopex were not bad people at the end of the, the original ending. Yeah. So, but you know, like Raymond Burr, uh, you know, they have to be killers. So they, they are. And that absolves Tom Hanks. It makes everything okay, apparently. <laughs> the fact but that these people are... Uh, <laughs> go away for a while, so I guess <laughs> he's still expecting to go into prison, though, yeah? No, I, I don't think so. I don't not not after they discover that the Klopex were were actually killing people. I think the line where he's like, "After I get out of prison, I'm going to help you rebuild your house," is before he discovers that Mister that Doctor Klopex is the the bad guy. No, well, I guess uh, before you get Corey Feldman's final line, he and Carrie Fisher um, he talks to Ricky and he says, "I'm going to be gone for a while," and then they go back into his house. Um, yeah, but doesn't he walk away and say that he's going on vacation? Uh, I don't know. I thought you know, I kind of took that as him, you know, going to prison. But I guess, you know, realistically, he would have gone to prison for what he did, considering just, you know, destruction of property and all these other things that they tr- they listed off um, when they get arrested by the detective. But Lance um, Howard. Yeah. In in the world of this movie, you know, you would imagine he would have gotten off because everything's so kind of cartoony. Right. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm pretty sure he has a line where, like, uh, Art's like, where are you going? And he's like, I'm going on vacation. <laughs> he needs a vacation from his vacation. Mm-hmm. And Art gets, like, uh, what does he say? Your wife's home or something like that? Oh, yeah, because the ambulance goes into Art's house, and then you see this woman dressed all in pink, like, like you know, kind of having a fit in front of the ambulance. And they're like, Art, your wife is home. And, like, for him... That is like the scariest thing in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is home. Um, just, a couple things, you know, because we're running out of time here. But a couple things, like I love the uh, the the scene earlier in the movie after the bees, um, and they they got, they get squirted off with water and stuff like that, and they're all looking at the Klopex house and. Uh, Bruce Dern's character, Mark, says, in Southeast Asia, we'd call this type of thing bad karma. <laughs> Dern just delights the, the shit out of me. Like, I, I just freaking love Bruce Dern. When he falls off the roof, it's like a very cartoony thing that shouldn't be as funny as it is. But it's so, it, like I could not stop laughing for like five minutes. Watching him fall off the roof was like the highlight of my day. Well, I like his interrogation once they get into the Klopex house. Um, he's like, you know, peeling off wallpaper, knocking on like pipes. And- I, I hear he improvised that. I did like I did read that, that he improvised the wallpaper thing. Yeah. He tries uh, to put the wallpaper back on. Uh, <laughs> apparently, when they made this movie, it was during a writer's strike. So they they were not able to like, they had to have the cast improvise a bunch of stuff. And you can kind of feel like like that's the case in the movie. Um, 
but uh, but I, I like that about it though. It feels it feels natural. who has got a lot of good moments, like you know pretzels and sardines. Oh, and oh, the sound effect of the sardines. It's so gross. It's so squishy. And sardines are not typically like, and I don't eat sardines. I haven't had a sardine since I was like really, really little. Um, but sardines are typically like really like salty, but they're not like in, they're not mushy, like squishy. Like, and that sound effect is so like unnerving. It was canned though, right? So yeah. Fresh sardines are lovely. Okay. I'll take your word for that. I'm not gonna run out and try any. <laughs> get some Pudinesca. Be, be good. Next time you go, get some Italian food. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, I guess at the end, um, once the credits start rolling, that's the clip that they choose to like highlight to Tom Hanks, him eating like the pretzel sardine thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in trying it. Like he just offers sardine. He doesn't even. <laughs> I remember thinking that was hilarious to me. Yeah, Bruce Dern, Bruce Dern, though, I think like he does steal that scene in particular, but um, he might be my favorite neighbor of the film. Too. Yeah, he, well, he's he's purposely antagonistic in that scene with the Klopex. Yeah, when he talks to, um, I guess, not the doctor, but the other Klopex, he goes, like, let's, why don't we get rid of all this, uh, <laughs> all of this fake neighbor bullshit or something? <laughs> yeah. Where's the body? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I like I, I that scene where he's talking to uh, you know, I I can't remember the the guy's name, um, but uh, he's like about a nine on the tension scale there. <laughs> Man, there's, there's so much... Are you slapping your thigh? Yes. <laughs> I'm glad I picked this movie. Me too, me too. It's it's funny, like, this movie, I think, was always, like, a big movie for a couple of our friends. Um, uh, Dave Foster and Jeff Schock are both big, big fans of The Burbs. And to be honest, I rewatched The Burbs with Chelsea uh, maybe a, a month or two ago before you decided you wanted to do it for an episode. And, oh, uh, yeah. Mentioned that. So, did you rewatch it for this recording? Yes. Yeah, I rewatched it last night. Um, but like, I was never the biggest fan of the Burbs. Like, I had seen it and I thought it was all right. I thought I had some moments, um, but I was not a huge fan. But having rewatched it a couple times just recently, um, like, I'm a much bigger fan of the Burbs now. So, thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, it's, it's my gift to you. <laughs> it is. It is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, yeah, look, I even wrote that down. The sound effect on the sardines, very squishy. <laughs> I love I love the moment when the uh, the Doctor Klopek comes up out of the basement and he shakes Ray's hand, and then you get that shot where like he's wearing a glove and it's covered in red stuff, and you assume it's blood, and Tom Hanks pulls his hand up closer to his face and like starts to scream. And then they just kind of like smash cut like, and, and then it's just kind of handled like, Oh, it's, you know, sorry about the paint. You know, I was touching up one of my portraits or something like that. Yeah, um, start flipping a, a painting cause you can't tell what's right side up. I love that painting. It's uh, it, it's, it's a shot of an operation from the point of view of the, um, the patient. 
Is it? Yeah. Yeah. You can yeah. see two doctors in masks, like handling instruments. And, uh, and it's, you can see the hole like in, in the guy's chest, but you don't yeah, see it's like stuff. it's from the point of view of his face though. Anyway. Oh. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Um, hmm, I don't know. Carrie Fisher. Yeah. She's a uh, voice of reason. Um, yeah, well, the the ladies are much more sensible. You know, she, yeah. Carol and Bonnie, you know, uh, the men don't know what to do, and they're like, you know what, we're just going to go over there. It's been a month. This is long overdue. We're just going to have a nice neighborly chat. And that that turns into that very weird meet and greet, you know, the interrogation scene there. Yeah. Um, uh, after Art falls from the telephone pole into the shed... Uh, there's a Looney Tunes-esque art-shaped hole in the roof of the shed for the rest of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that scene when, like, uh, when uh, when Ray sends uh, his wife and son away to a cabin or something. Yeah. Um, like, Art shows up. Oh, he's wearing, like, that really kind of goofy golf attire. Yeah, because like, oh, they have a foursome planned, yeah. I got I got a I got a new glove. That's how much golf we're going to be playing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of good stuff in the movie. Yeah. All right. I guess that's a good place to wrap up. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's wrap it up here. Um, yeah. So uh, ho- hopefully everyone enjoyed uh, rewatching the Burbs with us. And, uh, or not with us, but in preparation for this, maybe, or maybe you'll listen to this and then want to watch the burbs. Uh, hopefully we didn't, uh, well, Cesar didn't, but hopefully I didn't ramble along too much, uh, incoherent nonsense. Uh, but, uh, that's part of our charm, CJ. Just uh, rolling. Well, if you want to call it that, it's, uh, it's, it's part of our dynamic. That's for sure. I don't know if it's charm. Alright, it's charming to me, man. Alright, cool. Well, that's all that matters to me. Alright, it's uh, for us. In the meantime, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, of course, at filmsmash.com um, or on Twitter, at Junior Beho. And you can find me on Twitter as well, at Setting the Frame. Uh, so until next time, thank you all very much, and uh, you know, go watch some movies. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, guys. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.